Open our Bibles, if you're not there already, to Ephesians chapter 4, and um, let's pray and ask the Lord to help. Let's get to work here. Father, all of us have conflict, and that's the problem with this subject. It is, it's hard, it's complicated, and I thank you for texts like Romans 12, 18 that says, if possible, as much as lies within you, live at peace with all men. Two conditional statements before a command. And I just thank you for the honesty of that passage, that sometimes it's it seems almost impossible. And there's other people involved. So how do we do this with other sinful people like us? So, Lord, we need your help today. I need your help to take this really complicated subject and, on the one hand, just make it really simple for some people who need to get off the dime and start working at resolving some conflict. And on the other hand, Lord, to be graciously honest that Resolving conflict biblically is a mess. It's complicated. There aren't just three steps and it all works out. Sometimes you do everything right and it still doesn't work, at least not here on earth. And so we need your help today to know how to think about this. And I need your help to how to communicate this with ditches on either side. On the one hand would be people who, Lord, I don't want to feel, I them to feel any more guilt than what they've already felt because they've worked so hard over the years to try and resolve conflict and to no avail. On the other hand, I don't want folks to feel content when they need to do something that you have spoken to them about a long time ago. So Holy Spirit, please be our teacher today. Help me get this right. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So listen. We, we live in the midst of a culture that's just filled with conflict. It's all over, isn't it? As I dove into this topic this week and into Ephesians chapter 4, it just raised my radar big time about all the conflict that's in our culture. It's everywhere, from parking lots, grocery stores, in our own homes. And I don't know if you've noticed, but in the last two weeks on the news, lots of conflicts. Senators and congressmen went home, <clears throat> And they have gotten an earful. And, and it's all over the news. In fact, I asked the guys to put together a little video montage clip of the last week. Uh, Kate and I have decided to separate. Yes, we uh, have decided um, that we will separate. I called your office and I was told I could have the mic to speak. <laughs> speak. You handed out, what, 30 cards? Well, I got news for you. Not a single one of you had the decency to call my office and set up for a meeting. And that's just from the last two weeks. And I can show you a lot other clips, a lot more. The reality is conflict's a part of our culture. It's, it's part of the air that we breathe. And yet in the midst of that kind of environment, Jesus says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. In the midst of that, we hear the apostles Paul say, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I don't know about you, but when I read that scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, I got to the end of it, and you know what came out of my mouth? Impossible. I can't, I can't do that. 
apart from Christ. And even with him, there's this cut, bears all things, endures all things, hopes all things. You see, in the midst of this, this raging sea of conflict and turmoil and tension and strong, angry words and combativeness between people, the biblical image is of an island of peace where people love one another and they get along with one another and love rules and reigns. You see, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about relationships and how to, frankly, if you want to kill relationships and irritate people, just be full of yourself. That was the first week. Just use anger to get what you want. And third, live with unresolved conflict. We learned last week that God resists the proud, or two weeks ago, that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That he is willing to pour out grace to humble people. And we also learned that the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness that God requires. In other words, you have to choose between, do you want your way or God's way? And I'm I'm building through this series, building blocks of truth on one another. And we began with pride, and that manifests itself in anger. And I want to tell you that one of the clearest ways that anger and pride surface in how we handle conflict. It is a major indicator, conflict resolution, of your ability to be able to honor the Lord and to be able to really embrace the value of what peace is all about. Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker, says this. Peacemakers are people who breathe grace. They draw continually on the goodness and power of Jesus Christ. And then they bring his love and mercy and forgiveness, strength and wisdom to conflicts of daily life. So, pause. See, some of you, the reason why you have unresolved conflict in your life and why your life is perpetually butting heads against people is because this. You don't know the cross of Christ and how... Real peace comes. And I just have a good, kind word for you. You will never know how to be able to make peace until you make peace with God through Jesus. You can't come to a point where you say, I need to glorify you by resolving conflict. If that foundation isn't there, there's no hope. And yet the beautiful thing is, is you could be here today and God's going to use a message on conflict resolution to open your eyes to the reality of your need to turn from your sin and run to Jesus. He's going to use the pain of people to bring you to your knees to say, I can't do this. I need your help. God delights to breathe his grace through peacemakers and to use them to dissipate anger, improve understanding, promote justice and encourage repentance and reconciliation. In fact, what I'm going to argue today is if there's anyone on planet Earth who ought to love peace and strive for peace and not give up in working for peace and and continually choose to find ways to make peace with people, it ought to be people who are followers of Jesus. Because we, friends, know the Prince of Peace. We know what He's done, and based upon the reconciliation through Christ, are able to come to people in relationships and be able to bring the peace of Jesus in those contexts, relationships, friendships, and marriages. So here's my question. Peacemakers are people who breathe grace. Does does that describe you? Does that describe your marriage? Does that describe your relationships? Kids, does that describe your relationship with your brother or sister? Are you kind of child who makes peace with your siblings? 
What kind of environment, mom and dad, of peace are you creating? How many conversations have your children heard that they weren't supposed to hear that involved you resolving conflicts versus escalating them? You see, imagine what it would be like to be the kind of person who is able to work through difficulties in a profitable and God-honoring way. Imagine what it would be like to be the kind of person whose relationships are characterized by peace. I've not looked forward to delivering this message. The reason is, is because there's dangerous ditches on either side. Candidly, there's some of you who have worked so hard for so many years on a particular relationship, and as much as it is within you, you've tried, and yet it's unreconcilable. I do not want you to leave here feeling guilty. I don't. I want you to feel encouraged. You did the right thing. And even though it's not working, it doesn't mean it's not working. You just keep doing what you do. You keep loving. You keep covering things in love. You keep reaching out. You keep being gracious. Don't stop. And then there's others of you who, you got this person and you know you're supposed to have a conversation. And I want you to get off the dime. I want you to stop tolerating this unresolved conflict, thinking that, you know, it'll eventually it'll just stop. And there's others of you who talk about everything. Every little conflict you got to confront and talk about, and you are really annoying to be around. Every issue you have is you just talk about it. You have, you've offended me here and offended me there. And what's happening is you're making people angry because you just can't relax. And part of the reason is because you're proud. And you think, how, how dare people insult me? So... I want to try and help all of us, which is not an enviable task, and not throw you off to a ditch and also help you to realize that the things we're going to talk about today are really complicated. So if you're looking for three steps that will guarantee conflict resolution, not going to find it. Sorry. By the way, that's why we've been given the Holy Spirit. Because God doesn't give us like three steps or four steps to guarantee conflict resolution. In fact, this is hard stuff. This is the kind of stuff that gets you on your knees as you say, Jesus, I don't know what to do. Should I cover this in love? Do I confront? What's my tone? Do I rebuke sharply? Do I simply be filled with grace? How how do I do this? And there's, there's, there's principles, but there's no one, two, three. This breaks us. It humbles us. It makes us hear 1 Corinthians 13 and go, it's, I can't do this. But I don't want you to give up. I want you to get back in the fight, back in the conflict resolution ring, and figure out what does Jesus want you to do in your world. So, from Ephesians 4, I want to give you three relationship commitments. And these are the foundations. The, the, the basics of what it means for us to live in a Jesus-centered reality when it comes to conflict. Now, take a look at Ephesians 4 and verse 1. Because the text that we're looking at is in the context of chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul says this, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So he's telling them that there's a calling that they've been given, and how are they to walk in this manner? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
So that's the goal. You've been given a calling. You're supposed to walk in a manner that's humble and gentle. And your goal is to strive to keep the unity. Then in the midst of that, verse 25 marks a transition as to how you are to do this. And that's when Paul says, therefore... Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So the first thing that I just want to get into your mind and heart is this. I have to be honest. Verse 25 tells us that if you're ever going to work at conflict resolution, there has to be a fundamental commitment to truth-telling, to honesty. The argument goes, since you put away lying, that was what was your former life, and now you have... Put on Jesus, speak the truth with each other, and the reason is because we belong to one another. In other words, Jesus-centered relationships do not thrive when there is an absence of truth-telling. Just let that sink in. You will not have the kind of Jesus-exalting marriage, the kind of relationship with your children, the kind of context and relationship with friends that honor the Lord if there isn't a fundamental commitment to truth. Now, it doesn't mean that you speak everything that comes to your mind. Please don't be one of those kind of people. I just tell people like I think whatever's in my mind, I just tell people. Please, we do not need a window to your sinful mind. We don't. We don't want that. No one likes that. You may feel better because you've been able to throw up all your garbage on somebody else. You may feel purged, but they feel dirty and messed up. Don't be like that. It's not saying say everything that you think. What he's talking about here is this basic commitment to truth. Now think about it. The first sin in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, was a lie that the, the devil, in tempting Eve, caused her to be tempted and to believe a lie. That has God said? And that lie then created this separation after Adam and Eve took of the fruit, the separation between God and mankind. This lie was implicit in the conflict between God and mankind. In the same way, a lack of truth-telling creates a relationship context that is shaky. Truth-telling is a key building block for God-honoring relationships. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his commentary on this passage. What makes fellowship possible is trust. Mutual trust, mutual reliance, a feeling that you can trust one another, therefore you can speak freely and openly to one another. So when I candidated here, and I've said this to our staff before, I I said this, I don't trust somebody until I know that they'll be honest with me. I don't deal well in relationships where I'm always wondering, so what did that mean, And, and what was that about, and what's the real agenda here? That just drives me nuts. And I won't trust someone until I know that their yes is going to be yes and their no is going to be no, even if I don't like their yes. But I want to know, what do you think? Here's what Lloyd-Jones says. But the moment the element of lying comes in, fellowship is destroyed. You are no longer free. You don't know how much you can believe or what you can believe. You don't know how much you can trust the other person. You ever had a relationship like that? You never know what they mean. You never know what the nuance is, and there's all of this confusion. What happens is that a lack of truthfulness destroys fellowship. And dealing with conflict from a biblical perspective requires that you're committed to the truth, that you're willing to be honest about the problem, you're willing to be honest and lovingly share with the person that you've been hurt, you're willing to deal honestly with your own contribution to the problem, you're willing to be honest about your own sin, 
And what happens is a lack of honesty will create an environment that doesn't produce God-honoring relationships. There will always be this sense, what's your agenda? And I don't want you to be those kind of people. So yesterday, I got a knock on my door. Open the door, and it's this woman at the front, and she has this brochure. She hands it to me, and she said, Sir, we'd like to give you a uh, free carpet cleaning in one of the room of your house and on your stairs. Do you have any dirty traffic areas? And before I know it, we're engaged in this conversation. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we have a couple of dirty traffic areas. I don't know. I said, what exactly are you? Uh, well, we just want to give you something free. I know she doesn't want to give me something free. What she wants is she wants my money. That's what she wants. And before, I've had these folks come up to my door, and they have like a big candle. And the guy walks up. He's like, hey, here's a candle for you. You know, and before you know it, you got this big smelly candle in your hands. And you're like, what is this? And then he starts telling you the story. You know, if I just make this presentation, I get 50 bucks and et cetera, et cetera. And before you know it, you realize, you know what? This isn't about something free. This isn't about the 50 bucks. There's a catch to this. There's an agenda. The problem is, is that's how some of our relationships are, aren't they? You're just waiting for the bomb. Someone says, hey, can we do lunch? And internally you want to ask, why? (laughs) I just want to get together. And you're like, yeah, right. What's the real agenda? So all lunch long, you're waiting for the shoe to drop. So, hey, what I really want to talk with you about, and they go, oh, okay, here it is. Here it is. You see, a lack of truth-telling creates a fundamental distrust and a breakage of fellowship. And what Paul is saying here is that we are to be known as the kind of people who lovingly speak the truth to each other. That means, to speak the truth in love, means that I love you enough to tell you honestly what I think is going on, and I tell you in the right way. It means that I love you enough that I want to deal with awkward situations because I'm concerned for your best interest. So first, I have to be honest with myself and also with you. The second thing is I have to control my anger. Look at Ephesians 4.26. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, he's not commanding here anger like, hey, go get angry. Just don't sin when you're doing it. What he means is more along the lines of how the NIV has translated this. In your anger, do not sin. It means that, look, there's going to be situations in life that are going to make you upset, things that are going to happen that you're going to be angry about, but in your anger, don't be sinful. So last week we talked about the difference between um, righteous anger and sinful anger. And let me just remind you that, that righteous anger is essentially... The kind of anger that's focused on these three things. The right issue, meaning it's specifically something that God has said is wrong, and and therefore we need to be angry about it. So my point last week was, the problem with our anger is we get angry about the wrong stuff, and we don't get angry about the right stuff. The second thing is the right focus. The question is, are you angry because of you, or are you angry because of God's righteousness, because his name has been defamed, because his kingdom has been hindered, or are you concerned about yourself? And finally, the right expression, meaning that the way in which you talk about and express your anger is in the right manner. It's controlled. It may be direct, it may be sharp, but it's not sinful. So it's important for us to understand that righteous anger is possible, And Paul says, look, I have to control my anger. Now, why is that so critical? Here's why. Because if you don't get a hold of your anger, listen to me carefully, you will not listen to people. You will not understand what they're saying. 
and you will say things that you regret. You will have arguments with your spouse and then get into the argument. You ever had one of these? And then go, what are we arguing about? I don't even, I've lost track of what we're fighting about because it started like this and it grew. And why did it grow? Why did it grow? It grow, it, it got bigger because <laughs> it got bigger. It makes me angry when I do that. It makes me, it got, it got bigger because your anger was causing additional conflict. It, it, it like got extra stuff on it. And before you know it, you've lost the central issue. You'll never be able to resolve conflict biblically if you don't have a control over your anger. And to be countercultural when it comes to conflict means that your anger is in check. Otherwise, you're going to make issues that could have been solved impossible to solve because you're so hard to deal with. So please, a commitment to honesty and then a commitment that I'm, I'm going to choose to not get angry. The third is I must resolve issues quickly. Now, this of all of these is probably, I think, the most critical. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So what he says here is don't let the sun go down on your anger, meaning deal with your anger in a quick fashion. Now, when I first heard this passage, I was maybe a little bit too literal And my poor wife, I made us resolve conflict before the sun came up. And that meant that sometimes we were like discussing things aggressively at two in the morning, right? And I don't know about you, but we're not real righteous in our discussions at two in the morning. So here's a little clue for you. This doesn't mean that you have to discuss everything, get it all resolved before the sun comes up. But it could mean that you could have some, have a conversation like this. Look, honey, we're both tired and it's clear that you can't handle being tired and your sinfulness is just going way through the roof. So what we need to do is let you get a good night's sleep so when you wake up tomorrow, you can be really under conviction and, and then we can talk about this. So let's just, let's just pause and let's pray for your heart and let's go to bed and then we'll start again tomorrow. So you understand the point. Okay, the point is, is it's not inappropriate to say, hey, you know what? We're going to get after this thing, but right now, the most godly thing in the world we can do is just put a pause here and go to bed. And then believe that there'll be new mercy and grace for us in the morning because right now at two in the morning, there's not much grace that we're consuming. It means that you're resolved, listen, that you are going to resolve this. It means that you're committed that I'm not going to let this fester. I'm not let, let this going to sit here. And Paul even goes further. He says, and give no opportunity to the devil. What does that mean? It means that when we allow things to fester, the problems get larger and bigger. Our, our lack of understanding what somebody meant and the conflict begin to stack it up like, like little things that we put in a sack and then when we get an opportunity, we just throw it all on the table and you're in a conversation you're like, where did all of this come from? So we must resolve issues quickly. The reason that you must do this is because if you're a follower of Jesus, you know what conflict can do and you know where it comes from and you know the solution. So you see it through a different lens. So it's not that you just hate conflict because it's annoying or it creates problems, but you should hate conflict because you know what it's really all about. James chapter 4 says this, where do fights and quarrels come from? And he says this, Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And the reason why there are arguments and quarrels and conflicts that are sinful are because of desires and passions within us. And believers in Jesus understand this. We see this through the world. We see this in the world and through the lens of the Scriptures. 
Which is why Jesus said in Matthew 5, If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to court with him. Listen to me. Followers of Jesus are the only people who think this way. People in the world who are only concerned about their own selfish agenda are like, no way I'm going to settle with him before I go to court. I'm going to get every single pound of flesh that I deserve. Or, when it comes to an argument with their spouse, they think, you know what? I've asked for forgiveness, or I said I'm sorry, every time over the last four weeks. I'm not saying it first this time. And what Jesus calls us to do is to die a thousand deaths in our lifetime. A million deaths where we say, I don't want to do this, but you are calling me to become like you through resolving conflict. It means that the Bible calls us to be bent toward action. And the point of these passages in Ephesians 4 is this, that we should see life through this biblical lens where we are looking at conflict as something that by God's grace we can deal with in a manner that honors Him. To be able to say, look, I'm going to take the the reconciliation that I know about in Jesus, to take the fundamental commitment to truth and honesty that Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no, and this sense that I don't want the devil to have any more room to run in my life, and because of that, I'm going to take conflict resolution seriously. I don't want to allow issues to fester. Now hear me. I used to think that if you just did this, you'd never have any conflict. I used to think if you did this stuff, then you'd be at peace with everyone all the time. And and you know what? That doesn't happen. That's why Paul says, if possible, as much as lies within you. The, The reality is, even if you're committed to being honest and controlling your anger, resolving issues quickly, it still is hard work. And you know what? It doesn't always work to produce peace. It's not a X plus Y equals Z kind of equation. The Bible's not calling you to be perfect. Rather, what the Bible's calling you to do is to be prepared in your heart and in your mind and in your soul, ready that your disposition is, I want to be working to resolve issues wherever possible and as much as it relies upon me. I want you to be prepared. So I went back to that um, grocery store, remember, that had carted me a couple weeks ago? Yeah, so I went back there this weekend. I had to make a return, and I was just waiting for the experience. Except this time, I was ready. I was ready to be humble. I was ready to be gracious. I I was ready to pull that ID out, lickety-split, if that person asked for it. And so I brought back something, and I didn't have my receipt. I thought, I'm going to hear it this time. Policy, policy, policy. So I brought it in, and, and the lady said, well, how long did you buy it? And I was like, I don't know, like nine years ago. No, I was like, uh, three, four months ago. Do you have your receipt? No. And I was like, here it comes. And she was like, oh, that's okay. I was like, sweet. Like, why couldn't I have you a couple weeks ago, you know? And so and so she goes it through, and, and uh, I pull out my wallet, and she's like, can I see your ID? And I'm like, uh-huh. And I handed it to her without taking it out, just on purpose. You know, I handed it to her like that with, with in the plastic. And uh, she looked at it. She said, oh, that's great. Thank you. I was like, sweet. Yeah, I got around the policy again, right? And um, and so I'm looking for that other checkout person, you know. And by the way, I didn't wear my Jesus shirt this time, just so you know, just to be safe. So, um, and, and then I went back shopping and got my stuff out and, and was checking out again. 
and ran my debit card through and the lady said, can I see your ID? And I handed it to her and I had my finger ready to pull that out in a moment's notice. I, I was ready to do exactly what she wanted me to do. I, I, was, I was mentally and spiritually prepared for this moment. I walked into that store, which I'm not telling you which one it is, by the way. People have asked me, which one was it? I'm not telling you. Um, you find out for yourself, then tell each other, text each other. So anyways, <laughs> and I'm waiting and she never asked. So I walked out of the store, and I was prepared. I was ready. I was ready, if I had to, to be able to humble myself and do what she wanted me to do. And here's what I want you to do. I just want you to be the kind of people who are ready to humble yourself and work at resolving conflict. Even if the opportunity doesn't present itself, I want you to walk out of here today with a different perspective, a different mentality, a different view, if you will, of conflict as something that you can use to honor and glorify Christ. Now, let me give you some really specific things about what you do when you have conflict. I want today to motivate you to either keep doing what some of you are doing or some of others to be able to get off the dime. So how how specifically do you do that? Here's the first one. I want you to see conflict first and foremost as an opportunity. Here's a passage that has been a great help to me. 1 Corinthians 11.19. You want to write that down somewhere in your notes. Circle it in the manuscript. It indicates that in the church at Corinth, there were problems and differences that were happening. And Paul says this, No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Meaning that those divisions, those differences, those conflicts were there and they presented an opportunity to show who really is mature. So here's the deal. Not all conflict is sinful. But it always provides an opportunity for you to grow and be mature. So not not all conflict is is sinful. The reason is is that some conflicts just happen because of misunderstandings, because of miscommunication, uh, because life changes. You know when you got married, uh, things were a particular way, and then God gave you kids, and you had one, and then you had two, and that was like man-to-man defense, and then he added a third, and you had to move into zone, and you weren't used to that, and how do you do this now with three kids? And, and when that, that happens, life changes, and, and things about you change. In fact, I remember a conversation I had with my wife after we had our had Jeremiah, and uh, some of you heard the story before. We took the uh, the love languages test when we were in premarital counseling in Othazar, Gary Smalley's. And so I love that because here I had on paper documented my wife's top three ways to express love to her. And I was like, bonus, my wife on a piece of paper. I can do this. And I just did that for the first three to four years. And I did it like religiously. Bang, bang, bang. And then after the third child comes along, we had this conversation. I said, you know, I'm just sensing that the things that I'm doing just aren't like the thing anymore. They're not, you're just not the same. And, and my wife said, well... Yeah, they're not. I was like, what? It's like, wait a minute. We had this love languages test, and you said one, two, three, and I'm doing one, two, three, and it's not, you know. And she's like, well, I changed my love languages. I was like, you can't be changing love languages. And she said, I can. They're mine. I can change them whenever I want. And I said, not without written notification, you can't. You'll be changing love languages on me. I got you figured out. And what happens is over time, life changes. And you have conflict, it's just normal. In fact, when you got different people in the room, there's going to be conflict because you see things differently. Not everybody thinks like you. Thank the Lord that everybody thinks like you. 
Not everybody looks like you. Not everybody acts like you. There are people who are different. And you know what? There's certain kind of people who you like hanging around with. And there's other people who you don't kind of like hanging around with. And you still got to love them anyways. And if everyone in the church was just like you, the kind of people who you like hanging around with, that's called a cult. And you don't want to be a part of that. <laughs> Seriously, it's bad news. So I want you to see conflict as an opportunity, to see it as a chance to be able to glorify God. So listen to me, some of you, this is the most important thing you're going to hear today. It's this. Nobody chooses whether or not you are going to glorify God in conflict but you. And nobody can make you not choose to glorify Christ but you. Some of us need to stop blaming our spouses our circumstances, and realize that you can always choose to glorify Christ. No matter what the conflict is, you can always choose to glorify Him. You can always see all conflict as an opportunity to exalt Him. You can always use it to grow. And so I want you to see conflict differently. I don't want you to go out here like, oh, come on, bring it on, bring it on, bring it on. I want you to go out, though, with this perspective of when this happens, I'm going to see it as an opportunity to glorify Christ. Don't throw up your hands like, oh, another conflict. Another issue. As if your life deserves to have no issues. You deserve lots of issues. In fact, God knows you need lots of them in order to make you like His Son. And we got a long way to go, which is why He puts lots of hard people in our lives to form us into the image of His Son. And oh, by the way, that's the goal anyways. Your goal is not just an easy life. Your goal is to be like Jesus. So I want you to change how you see conflict. The second thing is to choose to overlook the offense. So listen, conflict is a normal part of living in a fallen world. And most of the time, I don't know a percentage, but most of the time, we should just simply be willing to overlook the offense. We just take the conflict and we cover it in love. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keeping Keep loving each other earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 19.11 Good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Please do not be one of these people who feel like everything that's ever done wrong to you, you have to confront people on it. And you're like a professional confronter. People, you know, they, they, they hurt you, so you got to go talk to them. you got to meet with them. And you wonder why you have, like, no friends. It's because everyone's like, he just keeps confronting me. And it's my gift of confronting people. And the problem is, is, is you have to cover things in love. See, the reality is, most of the ways that we should respond to offenses should be under this banner. The overarching tone of our lives should be love towards others. Again, back to 1 Corinthians 13, where we bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things. Impossible. Impossible without Jesus. Overlooking an offense is more than just saying, oh, I'm not going to worry about it. It's an active process where you go back to the cross and you lay it at the feet of Jesus and maybe you tell him, you know what, this really hurts, but I've really hurt you and because of your mercy in my life, I choose to be merciful to this person who's hurt me. I choose to love them. It means that you treat the person as if they've never hurt you. I don't think this is forgiveness. I think it's a kind of forgiveness. It's the fruit of forgiveness without all of the preconditions that we'll talk about in a moment, like repentance and confession. 
It means you treat them with kindness way before they deserve it and maybe even before they realize how much they've hurt you. Now you might say, well, Mark, there's some conflicts that can't be covered in love. And I would say that's true. Absolutely. How do you know? I could give you a couple ways that you know. Things like, is it dishonoring to God? Does it damage your relationship? Does it hurt others? Is it destructive to the offender? Those would all be true. But, but you know what my conclusion after looking at all this? How, when to tell somebody that covered in love versus go and confront? The short answer is, you know what? I don't always know. Honestly, I don't. And, and a part of me is frustrated with that, and a part of me is really thankful for that. I'm frustrated because it would be a lot easier if you said one, two, three. I could put someone in a box and say, okay, confrontation time, baby, and I could know. But you know what? God has given us the Holy Spirit. I want to remind you that Paul said, walk in the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So there's nothing like conflict resolution to get us on our knees and say, Lord Jesus, I don't know what to do. Do I cover this one again or do I go and confront? Do, do I just cover this in love or do I really tell them what's going on? I don't. And you know what? That is hard to figure out. And it is humbling, it's difficult, it's gut-wrenching, and I think, in some respects, God intended for it to be that way because it makes us really dependent on Him. So, see it as an opportunity, choose to overlook it. Now, let's say that it needs to be talked about. The third would be confront with the goal of reconciliation. So here, the tone, I'm very intentional with the words that I'm using. Confront with the goal of reconciliation. Your goal is not just to give them a piece of your mind. Okay? Your goal is not just to get it off your chest. Just say it. Because you're going to feel really, you're going to feel better, but it won't necessarily be righteous. Now, what's involved when you have to go to someone? Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, okay, I, I have to go and talk to this person. How do I do this? Let me give you a couple suggestions. The first would be this. Be sure that you've had the right preparation. Meaning, take time to pray it through. Check to see, do I have my attitude right? Here's another one. Do I have the facts right? It's so frustrating when you go and talk to somebody and you get, you're all, you're all ready to just confront them and then you find out one little fact that changes everything and you're like, oh, <laughs> right? So be sure you got the facts right. Also be sure that your timing is right. Be, be sure that this fits in terms of the need of the moment. Also be sure that you've seen things from their vantage point and that you also realize, you know what, you may have been part of the problem and what has been your contribution. And then finally, this is a question I always ask myself, what exactly am I looking for? Because if I can't tell you what I'm looking for, I, I need this person to do this and then this. If I can't tell you what that is, it's probably that I'm just angry and I'm emotional and I just want to say it without action. If I can't tie it to some sort of action step, then I'm not ready. Now secondly, the right process. Matthew 18 tells us we're supposed to go one-on-one. -on -one. And that means you go tentatively, you go lovingly, and you could also go repeatedly. And if that doesn't work, you bring someone else along with you. Why? So you can have a thug with you? Is that why? No. The reason you bring someone else along is so that they can establish by evidence what's really going on. So they can say, yes, this is a real issue, or you know what, this really is just kind of a big misunderstanding. And we need other people to help us know that. Because when we get locked in in a conflict, it's hard to be able to navigate our way through it. We dig in our heels. 
That's why it's really helpful to have a third party, a trusted counselor, a friend to say, hey, you know what, can we have a conversation about this? If your friend asks you to be that person, don't be like, oh, no way, man, I'm not showing up at your house for that. You show up because they need you. And then if that doesn't work, next third and fourth step is telling it to the church and then even potentially a removal from fellowship. If I could give you three words, it would be lovingly, humbly, and relentlessly. For me, probably the best model that I've found to make sure that process is right is OIC. I make an observation. Here's what I see. Allow for some interpretation. It could be this or it could be that. It could be this. It could be this. It could be this. And then allow the person to clarify, to try and guard against over-defensiveness. You know, if someone's defensive when you're trying to confront them, it's game over. So the key is is to be lovingly, graciously, and gently helping them to see their needs. And I also want you to remember, it's not your job to bring conviction. Listen, only the Holy Spirit of God can bring conviction in people's lives. You are not the personalized version of the Holy Spirit to your children, your spouse, or your friends. Please, you are not God's gift to the church to be the Holy Spirit. We have a firm and sure third person of the Trinity who does a lot better job than we do. He's able to change hearts. And then finally, if the person repents and they ask your forgiveness, that's a really important moment. Be sure you don't blow it. When someone asks you forgiveness and you grant it to them, you're making a covenant. And in that covenant, you're promising these four things. These are from Sandy's book and some of the counseling material we use around here. You're making a covenant. Here they are. I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring this up again and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this. I will not let this stand between us. That's the covenant that you make. It doesn't mean, friends, that you forget. Some of you have had things done to you that there's no way you could ever forget. Forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting. It means that you choose to not hold somebody accountable for that. It means that you choose to release them from the debt that their sin created. And when the thought comes up what they did, you bring that thought back to the cross when you're tempted to talk about it to somebody else, you say, no, I forgave that. It's you continually preach forgiveness to your soul. In the Young Peacemaker book, they have it this way. It's a little poem. Good thought, hurt you not, gossip never, friends forever. You can almost hear the Michael W. Smith song in the background, can't you? Because friends are friends forever. Remember that? Because the Lord's the Lord. of So good thought. Hurt you not, gossip never, friends forever. It means that you choose to treat the person as if they've never hurt you. And then, listen, you work to restore the relationship. You figure out a way to help move the relationship forward. So you put all this together and what do you get? You get this beautiful sense that there's nothing sweeter than resolving God's, resolving conflicts God's way. And I also want to warn you, which you already know, that there's nothing more painful than long-term dishonesty, internalized anger, and unresolved conflict. And there's some of you here this morning that I just long for you to be free. Not free from conflict, but free to the bondage that comes from unresolved conflict year after year, week after week, month after month. I want you to be characterized by the kind of love that only comes from understanding how Jesus paid it all for us and that He is our Prince of Peace. That means that for some of you, I want you to try loving a hard person again. 
I want you to start praying for them. I want you to find ways to love them. I want you to have a conversation with them. There's some of you who need to leave here and sometime this week set up a time to say, look, we need to talk. Or be able to be honest about the fact that that you've not been honest. Or to be able to say, you know what, this is something we don't need to talk about. I just need to get busy in loving this person and realizing I don't have to change them. I just have to bear all things and hope all things. It's not my job to change them. At the end of the day, I long for all of us to be the kind of people who breathe God's grace into relationships. The kind of people who really demonstrate that they believe in Jesus by their commitment to make peace. And my guess, there's nobody who likes conflict. If you like conflict, I don't want to hang around you. (laughs) Nobody does. I think we love peace, and Jesus loves peace. And at the end of the day, we have to be the kind of people that make peace because we know the Prince of Peace. So do that, please, for the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you would minister to two buckets of people. The first bucket, a group of folks who have worked so hard to try and mend relationships and it's still broken. And the last thing they need to hear is just go and have another conversation because it didn't, it isn't the right step. Instead, they need to just choose to love again. And I pray, Lord, that they leave here today just with this commitment. Thank you, Lord. Help me to love. And then, Lord, for this other bucket of folks who they know that there's unresolved conflict, it needs a conversation. And they know it. I pray that you give them courage to believe by faith that you are sufficient for hard moments and difficult conversations. So, Lord, thank you that this subject brings us to our knees and reminds us that we are a needy people. And I pray that you would fill in the gaps between what I've said and what our people need to hear. And as we leave this morning... College Park, I just want to remind you, there'll be some counselors up here at the front. If you need someone to pray with you or just to be able to work out, hey, i got this situation, I don't know what to do, just give me some thoughts. They're here, because this is not an easy thing. And you shouldn't do it alone. So, Lord Jesus, help us to breathe grace. And we ask this in your name. Amen.